0: A story, you want a story? So there was once a family that was uh, stranded in the desert. There's my story. Imagine you were that family. Imagine you were driving, going to like Arizona or something. You were out in the desert and uh, your car broke down. Your dad probably got really frustrated and mad. Your mom got really anxious and stressed. Your siblings, your little siblings are crying. There's not food, whatever. And you get stuck right? And imagine for some reason you decide I'm not taking the freeway. I'm taking one of those little two-lane highways. So I'm out in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Is that a good idea or bad idea? What you think? Yeah. Bad idea. But I want you to imagine that that's what your parents decided, that that's what you, you were doing. So you were kind of stuck. You're out there. Um, and after a certain amount of time sitting in your car, which remember during the summertime in the desert, what happens to your car? It sits there and it bakes, right? It gets, doesn't get rusty. It gets hot. Uh, that's a little different. Rust is different than heat, but it gets really hot, right? And imagine you're sitting there, and you don't really have anything going for you. Obviously, you're stuck out in the desert. Your parents can't get you out, and you're stranded. You haven't seen anyone for days, and the first day rolls by, and it's really hot, and you sleep in the car. And the next day rolls along, and nothing. Nobody. Nobody. And then the next day, you're running out of your bottles of water at this point. Your Chex Mix is gone, right? You've eaten all your sunflower seeds, okay? You're out of all your food. You are in a lot of trouble at this point. But imagine you and your family were stuck in this position. Now, imagine as you are waiting, let's say it's day three or day four of being so hot and nothing is working. Your phone has run out of battery. Everybody has forgotten about you. That's what it feels like. And then imagine, out of nowhere. A helicopter comes and descends down, lands right near you, has six or seven big hydro flasks filled with water. You're so thirsty. You have not had anything to drink for a long time. And imagine, as you look at that helicopter descending, and you see all of those hydro flasks full of water, and the people up in the helicopter come to you and say, hey, hey, come on over. Come on over. Take a drink of water. Take a drink of water. Come on. I got it for you. It's like, sorry, I'm talking like I'm talking to my baby. Uh, So I keep saying when I give her milk, come on, eat, eat, take a little bit of water, right? Imagine that as you look at this helicopter, you're like, you know what? No, I actually, I really had a plan with all this. I wanted to get out in this car. So we're going to wait for a mechanic to show up. Goodbye. Helicopter flies away. You probably, uh, you'd be dumb. That's a dumb thing to do. Don't do that, right? It's not good. Well, that's kind of how things go. If you're waiting for a mechanic, you're not gonna find a mechanic out in the middle of nowhere because you're kind of helpless. And when someone offers you something, which I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty. Some of you are really thirsty right now. You play spike ball, play pickleball. You're really thirsty. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty. But when you're really thirsty in the hot air, nothing is better than water. Even if it's a little bit, even if it's not super cold, you just need water because your body needs it and you'll shut down. And obviously that family, if that's your family, you're in a pretty helpless situation. And if you only have one way of escape and you turn it down, you have no hope. There's nothing that you should be looking forward to. A mechanic is never going to show up in the middle of nowhere. You missed your opportunity if you tell that helicopter to go away. And as sad and as dumb and as tragic as that sounds, the reality is God has done done something similar to bring a helicopter to swoop in and save you. If you understood what I was talking about, you know that God says that we're all in a big problem. We've talked about it over and over looking at the book of Isaiah. The problem is that we're in our sin and we need to be saved out of our sin. And there is only one way for you and me to be saved. Only one way. But the problem is many of you, have done exactly what my family that I just described in this illustration have done. Many of you have known, you know the helicopter is the only solution. You've seen them offer you something to drink, something that will give you life. And instead of embracing it, running towards it, you have said, no, I'm rejecting that offer of salvation. Well, tonight, I want you to re-examine that right there. If you've heard the truth of the gospel and you've rejected it and you said, nope, I don't want it. I don't want to be saved. I don't want to live for God. I don't want my sins forgiven, at least not now. Maybe later someone else will come along and and maybe offer it again, but not right now. Just know that if you say that to God, you are doing exactly what that family did to that helicopter person with all the water and all the things that would save them. You're saying, no, I don't want to be saved. The reality is that describes a lot of you tonight. Maybe some of you have embraced that offer of salvation, but tonight what we're going to look at in the book of Isaiah is right after the, the the process of salvation is described. Right after we saw it last week, we saw Isaiah 53, how Jesus is going to come to save us. Right after that, the chapters that follow, here's what God says. Here's the offer. Here's what you need. You need something to drink. He he likens salvation to taking a drink of water. And he says, Here's the water, please take it. But the problem is, people then and people now say, I don't want it. I don't want to live for God. I don't want to serve God, and I don't want that to be used. So I want you to take your Bibles, and let's look together at the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Isaiah 55. This is right after that process of salvation is described. Remember, the book of Isaiah was written to sinful people, written to a whole nation of people that were sinful. Isaiah 55 is what we're looking at. This whole sinful nation of people where God says, hey, at the beginning of the book, if you just want to come and reason together, your sins can be blotted out. I will forgive your sins if you repent. If you turn, I will deal with your sins. And then the people might ask the question, well, how is God going to do that? God says in chapter 25, I'm going to remove the biggest problem, the death problem, the sin problem. I'll remove that. But still the question, how is God going to do that? Well, Isaiah 53 gives the answer, right? He's going to send someone to come and bear the sins of his people. How can God take a nation, the sinful nation of Israelites, and make them into a righteous nation? How can he do that? Right? He can't do that if they're going to continue in their sin. How can they continue in their sin and also be forgiven and God still be the just good God? How does that work? God has to send his son. God has to come himself. Isaiah 53 is all about that. So now, Isaiah 54 and 55, the main two chapters we're going to look at tonight, here's what God says. Here's the offer of salvation. Come, take it. That's like what we, and every message that we talk about the gospel in, you need to come and take it. Now, Isaiah 55 is the scene I just described. Look at it, everybody. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Look what it says. It's a quotation. He says, "Come." everyone who thirsts, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. It's the same illustration I just gave, right? It's like, hey, there's this water for you. Everyone who thirsts. And here's the thing, when it comes to salvation in Jesus, who needs Jesus? Think this through. Who needs Jesus, right? Well, everyone who's a sinner needs Jesus. You need Jesus. So what he's saying is everyone who thirsts, that means everybody who wants to be saved. Here, here's the one way to be saved, the servant. The suffering servant, the one who came and lived and died in our place. That's the one opportunity you have. The helicopter only comes around one time. It's only Jesus. There he says, Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. How does that work? How can you buy something with no money? Right? This is something that's super valuable. If you're in the desert, you know one way for you to make a lot of money is for you to sell water bottles out in the middle of the desert where people are walking. Imagine if you could do that. Now, obviously you can't do that because everybody drives, but you could make a lot of money. You could sell water bottles like $10 a pop, right? Because if you're really thirsty and out in the middle of nowhere and there's no water and you're the only water supply, you'd make a lot of money. And here's what he's saying. He says, the biggest need that you and I have, just like thirst, just like when we get thirsty, what do we need? Water. For people who are sinners, what do we need? We need to be saved. And guess what? God offers it even though it's a priceless thing. You can't live without it. But here's the crazy thing that God does. He says, come by without any money. You don't need any money. Why? Because it's been paid for by someone else. The servant, he's the one that paid for it two chapters ago. He says, come, look at the middle of verse one. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's talking about like the, not just a little bit of water. He's talking about a whole feast. I've got a feast in the desert for you and you can have it and you don't have to pay for it. That doesn't mean it's not expensive just someone else paid for it instead. The servant, he paid for it. Look at verse 2. He asks them a question. Why do you guys spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. It's like people trying to get a lot of um, food. You know the kind of food that they put out at stores that's fake plastic food that looks really good? Imagine you spent your last dollars, and you're really hungry, and you spent your your last couple dollars on a plastic hamburger That would be really dumb, right? Don't do that. He's saying, that's what you guys are doing, you Israelites. If you want to go try to find salvation anywhere else, if you want to go live for yourself in the world, you want to go try to find satisfaction in these other idols, or if you, you'd say this to you, Orange County junior high student, if you think that your life will be satisfied by trying to live the good life, by trying to be popular, trying to go to your your favorite high school or college, play whatever sport you want to play, and you think you're going to be satisfied with that, you are spending all your money on a plastic burger that will never make you satisfied, ever. So he says, "Why why do you spend all your money on that? And I'd ask you the same question. Why do you spend all your time thinking about things that don't matter? Why do you spend all your time thinking and talking and being all consumed in things that are not important? If you're not thinking about these big spiritual things, why do you spend all your time on that? He asked them the question, why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Middle of verse two, what does he say? Listen diligently to me. Be careful, listen to what I'm saying. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me Hear and your soul may live. See how he's not talking about water right here? The water is just an analogy. He's not really talking about having your thirst taken care of. What does he say? That your soul may live. He's talking about sinful people. How can a sinful person live when you've offended God? When you and God are enemies? How, how can you be friends again? Well, God has to give the helping hand. God has to bring you across. He says, delight yourselves in rich food. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. You know what the word everlasting means? It means forever. Okay. He says, I'm going to make a promise to you that's going to last forever, which is why we say in the New Testament, we find it everywhere in the New Testament, that if you're saved, if you're a forgiven person, how long can you stay forgiven? Everlasting. Forever. If you're right with God, that will never change. If you are saved by Jesus, you can never have it taken away from you. It's an everlasting covenant. He says, my steadfast and sure love for David. Remember, God made promises to that guy named David in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. He makes all these promises. He says, you guys, you're gonna be the important family. Your descendants will sit on the throne forever. we know his last descendant was Jesus. He's gonna sit on the throne forever. Verse four, check it out. He says, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. He's talking about David there. He's saying, look, David is an example for everybody. Behold, you shall call a nation that you don't know. And a nation... That did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. He's talking about a whole group of people from the outside, like us, running to the God of Israel and saying, That's our God. He's the only God over the entire earth. But what we're gonna see in chapter 55, we're gonna walk our way through it. It's only 13 verses. We're gonna walk our through, way through this chapter. But what you're gonna see is that God does something for sinful people, He offers them salvation. But what you need to see is the offer is a limited time offer. It's an urgent offer, it's limited time, and it's the most important thing that you would ever listen to. That you would be saved, that you have your sins forgiven, that you would have eternal life in Jesus. The whole point of all this whole sermon and this whole chapter is that you would take God's urgent offer of full salvation and free salvation for you. It's only through Jesus, the servant that we talked about in Isaiah chapter 53. But the first thing I want you to write down from these first five verses is this. Point number one, receive this gift. Receive full forgiveness and eternal life from Jesus. Receive that. Which, the reason I say full forgiveness and eternal life is when we're looking at this water, right? This water is symbolizing something. He's not talking about physical water, H2O. But it is a good analogy. Because when you think about it, water... (laughs) Is something that God made. And on this earth, you can't make more, you can't make less. You just use it and you keep reusing it. Right? It's kind of a gross thought. But every drip of water that you've ever had, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it has been a lot of different things. It has been a lot of different places. Right? Think that one through for two seconds, right? And you can clean it up, but it's all the same water, right? The water that God made when God made the world, it's the same water we got here today. It's really old. It gets filtered, it gets processed, but it's the same thing. It's a good illustration for us. He says, hey, come and eat. Come and drink this water. I have to give it to you. You cannot make water in your garage, right? And if you do, just remember, you're using the things that God has already made. Even if you can find some way to put oxygen and hydrogen together and say, ooh, H2O. You're still using God's oxygen. You're still using God's hydrogen. It's God's stuff that he's made. It's a good illustration. Just like salvation, you can't make it on your own which I think is the crazy thing about this, when you, people like you maybe hear that you can be saved and forgiven completely, maybe some of you, your reaction is, there's no way it could be that simple. There's no way. What is the thing I have to do? What, what's the church I have to attend? What's the stuff I have to sign up for? Do I have to do some homework assignments? Right? What's the book I have to read? Like, what do I need to do to be saved? And some of you think, okay, what's my big long list? Well, the answer is, come and drink the water. Come and take it. Some of you think, well, I don't want to do that because, uh, you know, if I do that, I mean, I look at all the people around me, I'm, I'm the best kid in my small group, right? You might not say that out loud, but you probably think that. Maybe you think you're the best girl, you're the most righteous, you read your Bible more, you know more, right? You're the godliest guy in your group, you know the most Bible verses, you've memorized more Bible verses, whatever it is. And you think, well, you know, I don't want to be saved just like the worst kid in my small group, right? Maybe some of you think you're the worst kid. You think, well, I can never be saved because I'm the worst kid. I'd have to change everything. There's no way God could ever accept me. There's no way God could ever change me. There's no way God would save me. But the same offer goes to both of you, whether you're the best or the worst. Come and take it. Jesus has supplied what's necessary for you to be saved. It's the same thing. I I kind of referenced it earlier. It's the same thing we do with Eden. Eden has not paid for any formula yet, okay? She's not bought anything, she has no capability, right? She can't buy anything. But what do we give her? We give her milk, right? We feed her. We're constantly giving her sleep, milk, sleep, No, She's not paid for any of that, right? Think it through for you. When's the last time you paid for sleep, right? Never, okay? God has given you all those things. Like everything that you have already comes from God. And here's what he's saying. Salvation is no different. You need it and you need God to give it to you. We looked at this verse in small groups last week. Philippians chapter 3 we looked at a couple of verses in this section, but I want you to write these down. Philippians 3, 4 through 10. Okay, Philippians 3, 4 to 10. There's a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. He wrote about his life and coming to salvation in Jesus. And it was a hard thing for him to do. You know why? Not because he didn't have that much. It's because he had so much stuff he thought was good. He thought there's no way that Jesus is better than all the things I've done. I was in wana. I did all the best things. He doesn't say wana, but here's what he says. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul says, I've done everything that there is for a person to do. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm a more righteous person than you are. If anyone could be saved on their own, it's me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that means he was from the perfect family. His parents did what was right for him. He was raised in the perfect family. This says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I knew it frontwards and backwards. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Right? I stood up for God so much, I was willing to kill anyone that didn't obey God just like I do. Because I was willing to do all that. And I did all that. Because as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You could not find one thing that I did where I broke one of the the laws outright. I mean, I know in my heart I did, but like I was better than everyone in my class. I was a more righteous person. I loved God more. I was more zealous. I was better on the outside and even on the inside, he says. Better than everyone. But he says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's the problem. Some, some of you might not be saved because you're trying to save up your money to buy salvation. Okay. You're thinking if I do all these things right now, like if I am a good kid in junior high, if I, you know, don't cuss, if I don't watch those bad movies, if I don't do those things, you know, then God's going to at some point look at me and say, great, you're embraced. You're good enough now. Okay. Here's what he's saying. You will never be good enough. You could work your entire life. You could be better than every last person in this room. You could know your Bible better than your small group leader. You could pray every day, all day long, but nothing of that will ever make a dent in the price. You know why? Because what was the price? Isaiah 53, what's the price? God himself, the son of God, living and dying in our place. That's the price. You could never make a dent in what he did for you. You could never, I mean, he, he paid, you know, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, and you're saving up your pennies and saying it's 31 cents enough, right? You don't, it's like not even close, okay? So here's what he says. Stop trying to save your money. Stop trying to count your money. You can't buy salvation. You need Jesus to pay for it on your behalf. So take it. That's what he's saying. Others of you might think, well, I'm too bad, right? I can never afford it. Exactly. Exactly. You can't. Correct. You have a better understanding than the person who's self-righteous in the room. If you think you can earn your way to God, you've missed that part. If you are on the other side and you think, well, I've done so many bad things, God would never forgive me. Well, then you've got one thing right, one thing wrong. The thing you've got right is that you know you can never earn it. The thing you have wrong is that you don't believe what Jesus has said. You don't believe that if you come and believe in him, that you will be saved. Another verse for you to write down, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4. It says God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God loved us so much that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. Okay. What does a dead person have to do to become alive? You tell me. When you die, how can you resurrect yourself? Nothing. You can't do anything. You're dead. That's the whole point. God is saying, God has to do it. So Full forgiveness, eternal life. The reason I use those two ideas is because that's what the servant has been talking about. But also, Jesus talks about this water. I don't know if you know, but there's a time in the Gospel of John, two times in fact, where Jesus talks about salvation and he says, it's like water. It's like the water that you need. First place is in John chapter four. John chapter four, verse 13. Jesus is talking to this lady. They're at a well. So where there's a lot of water, they're drawing water out. And Jesus goes up to her and says, hey, uh, can I have some water? And she's like, why are you talking to me? You're a, you're a Jewish guy. I'm a Samaritan woman. We never talk. And Jesus says, if you had any idea who I was, you'd be asking me for water. I would give you living water. It'd make you alive. You'd never thirst again. And she's like, okay, well, where can I get that water? And Jesus said to her in John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water, right, from this well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying, I give eternal life to people. Eternal life. I know that's a big concept. Full forgiveness, that's a little easier for us to understand. Right? We've done all these wrong things. Right? We deserve punishment. Jesus gives us full forgiveness. But eternal life, that's even bigger. right? Because if full forgiveness is like payment for what we've done wrong, eternal life is... Blessings that we didn't deserve. Right? It's on the other side of the spectrum. It's the other thing, but it's so important. Jesus also said in John chapter 7: it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And he said, This is John 7:37. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's the same thing. He's quoting Isaiah 55. He says, If you're thirsty, come to me. If you want salvation, there's one place you can find it. It's me. If you want to be saved, there's one person that you can get it from. It's Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow springs of living water. Jesus is trying to reference this. And if that's not impressive enough, the last book of the Bible, guess what Jesus starts talking about again, okay? Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. So this is the second to last chapter in the Bible. Here's what it says. It says, he said to me, it is done. This is Jesus talking. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. What's Jesus saying over and over again? I can provide what you need most. If you think you can be saved by any other way than Jesus, hear him say, you're not going to. Then you see in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, last chapter of the Bible, he says, the one who's thirsty, come, but the one who desires, take the water of life without price, okay? The whole idea of salvation is that it's free. You could never pay for it. It's completely free, but Jesus is the one who paid for it. It's not free in the sense that it's not valuable. It's so valuable that you could never afford it. So, we've talked about this before. I want you to think, well, have I embraced, have I received full forgiveness from Jesus in eternal life, or have I not? Because if I haven't, right, I, I, there's something that I need to do. There's something I need to turn to, and I need to turn to God. Well, if you're in your passage, look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse six. We read through chapter five. Look at verse six together. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Okay, here's what I want you to see there. God says, seek me while I may be found. There is a time when the helicopter is leaving. Think that through. Put yourself back in the shoes of that family at the beginning. There's a time where the helicopter is leaving. He says, seek the Lord right now because he'll be found right now. But you know what? There's going to come a time for every single person where the, the door to the, to the helicopter will shut, where the pilot will take the joystick that can fly away. There will come a time for every person that the offer of salvation is off the table that you can't respond anymore, but right now you can, and that's what he's saying. Seek the Lord right now. What what does he say? What should a person do? If they want to be saved, what should they do? Let the wicked forsake his way. That's what you should do, That is a word in the New Testament that we get a lot. It's the word repentance. It means to turn from your sin. That's what he's saying. Forsake your evil way. Stop doing the evil things that you do that are evil. Stop it and turn back to God. Seek the Lord. Do what's right. Point number two, If you're going to embrace this salvation, you need to give up your sin and seek God instead. Give up your sin and seek God instead. It's not one or the other of those. A lot of people try to do both at the same time. Or try to do one without the other, rather. They say, Well, I want to keep my sin, but I kind of want to pursue God. Maybe that's where some of you are at right now. You think, Well, I kind of like my sin, but I kind of, I'm interested in this church stuff. I kind of want to do church. I want to, you know, go. I want to listen. I want to take notes. I'm interested in all that. But you know what I'm also very interested in? I'm also interested in continuing to try to be the coolest person in school. I'm also interested in trying to be the most popular. I'm also interested in that too. And it's like, you need to pick which side you're going to be on. So he says, here, give up your sin, right? Whatever your sinful stuff that you've got going on, he says, give it up. It's not worth it. It's like you're in the desert, right? It's like, well, I really like playing, you know, in this car. The car seat—I mean, the the, the seat belt. it just gets so hot, you know. If I spit on it a little bit, it makes a funny little ring, right? Because it, it's so hot, it just kind of like evaporates, right? It's like, no, no, come to the helicopter, please, right? It's time to—it's time to come. It's, come. it's time to drink this water that God's given you. Like, no, no, I like it in here. Right? That's the problem with so many of us—we like our sin. It's like people who are—I you know this is kind of weird—but it's like people who are addicted to drugs, right? You know, as weird as that is, like a lot of them are addicted to drugs, really bad drugs. They love the thing that kills them, right? That's the problem with us, right? If you love popularity, right? Here's the problem. Popularity will kill you. If you love stuff and money, money and stuff will kill you. If you love to be cool, and if you love to be liked, that will kill you. If you love anything that is not the Lord, more than the Lord, it's an idol, and it will kill you. Right? So he says, give it up, forsake it, right? I love how he says your ways and your thoughts, Think this through for you. What are the ways that you need to repent of? What are the actions that if you're gonna seek God and turn from your sin, what are the actions that you need to get rid of? What are the things that you do, the words that you say that really you just need to stop? And then on the other hand, what are the thoughts that you need to give up? What are the impure thoughts? What are the sexually immoral thoughts that you need to give up? What are the unrighteous gossip thoughts, the hatred thoughts that you have towards? What are those things that you need to give up and say, I'm done with all of those? Just give it up chapter 56, if you look in your passage, just drop down real quick. God says to this group of people, he says, after you return from the land, you need to be righteous and just. He says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds fast to this. Look at what he says. I want you to keep the Sabbaths, not profaning it. keep your hand from doing any evil. What is he telling them? He's saying, hey, you guys need to follow my rules. He's talking to these Israelites. When they come back into the land, there's a couple things that God wants them to do. This is the whole reason you left and got taken away is because you didn't keep the Sabbaths and because you were unjust, right? I think one of the ways that those two things went together is if you were a boss, right? Let's say you had a field. Let's say you were a farmer and you had some farmers who worked in your field. God commands them. What were they supposed to do? One day out of seven, they were not supposed to work the ground, okay? They were not supposed to work it. Why? Because God says it's the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Don't work on it. Don't let your people work on it either. Well, one of the things that these people did is they said, you know what? I want to work seven days a week. I want my workers to work my field seven days a week because then I'll get one seventh more produce. So I'm going to keep working it. So what God was saying was that's unjust to make your workers work on the Sabbath because A, God says you can't do it, and B, you're exploiting them and not giving them a day of rest. So those two things, the Sabbath and injustice, work together, But what's the point for us, right? You don't keep the Sabbath, you don't have a bunch of workers that work for you on the Sabbath, what's the point? But he's saying, whatever your sin is, you need to give it up. Not only give it up, but do the righteous thing. Now, whatever the righteous thing for you to do is. If, and Ephesians 4 says this all over the place, he says, if you're a liar, right? And some of you are liars, you lie to your parents, you lie to your teachers, you lie to everybody, right? You're a liar, okay? What do you need to do? What does repentance look like for you? Giving that up and now telling the truth, which means when you get caught doing something you shouldn't, instead of lying to cover yourself like you used to do, you tell the truth. You own up to it. You, you get in trouble instead of getting away with it. For those of you that are, are gossips, right, what does it look like for you to repent? looks like for you to stop, stop talking about people behind their back, And start saying good things. Ephesians 4 says, instead of corrupting talk that tears down, what do you need to do? Building up talk. Encouraging talk. It's not enough for you just to stop those old sinful things. You got to start doing the righteous things. That's what it looks like to seek God. Later on, chapter 57. Check that out. Chapter 57, verse 16. Isaiah 57, 15 and 16. Verse 15, God says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, right? You could not describe God in any more of a big way than that. He says, this is what God says. I dwell in high and holy places, okay? That makes sense. God belongs there, right? Because he's holy, and he's perfect, and he's big, and he's strong. He belongs in the best place. Look where else God dwells. Look where else God lives. There's also, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He says, also, I live in the highest places, in the most glorious places, and there's one other place I really enjoy being, in the presence of people who turn from their sin, in the presence of people who are really hurt and guilty over their sin, who turn from it, who feel who are sensitive to what God's word says. I, I love to live and be with them. It says, here's what I'll do to them, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Contrite means to be repentant. Look at verse 16. God says, I won't contend forever, nor will I be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me in the breath of life that I've made. God says, I know that you sinful people, you couldn't take it if I was mad with you forever. He says, so you people who are repentant, trust me, I will live with you. I'll be with you. If you seek God, here's the other way God puts it, I will draw near to you. James 4 says that. James 4 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're a proud person, just like those people in that illustration in the beginning, say, I don't want to get in the helicopter because I want to find a mechanic and I want to drive my way out of here. That's a prideful response. It's the same as some of you who say, nope, I don't want to be forgiven by Jesus just like all the other people. I want to somehow earn my way into this thing. I want God to look at me and say, you look at how righteous you've been. If that's you, you're a proud person. It says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then it also says, if you draw near to God after you've repented of your sins, what does James 4 say? God will draw near to you. That is a promise from Scripture, which is why, if you ever doubt that, if you think there's no way God would ever forgive me, well, you're not believing what the Scriptures say. It says you, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven, certainly if you draw near to Jesus and turn from your sin. Psalm 51 puts it like this. It uses that contrite word. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So if you're a person who realizes your sin tonight and realizes that you deserve to be punished and you deserve God's wrath, but you know that Jesus is able and willing to save you and your heart is broken over that, right? You will never be saved if your heart does not get broken. If there's not, some tears, so to speak, and sometimes there are actual tears. Sometimes there's not, but the, the idea is a broken spirit. If your spirit is not broken, you cannot be saved, right? It just doesn't happen. But when your spirit is broken, what does God do? He says, he'll come, break your spirit, over your sin, and then what does he do? He comes and revives it, revives the spirit of the lowly. He's there with you. You have his his grace and his compassion that surrounds you and upholds you. Book of Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 7, 25 says, because Jesus is such a good high priest, he's able to save to the uttermost, right? He says, show me the worst sinner on the planet, the worst one, okay? Have you found him? Can you think of him? Okay, Je- the author of Hebrew says, Jesus can save even that person. That's how powerful he is, right? So you fall somewhere in the spectrum of bad people, right? You might not be the worst, right? If you start thinking of, okay, well, there's someone worse than me. Well, great. God can save them too. So I'm somewhere in the middle, right? Maybe on one end, maybe on the good end, maybe on the bad end. Here's the point. You are on the sinful spectrum and you, you need to be saved out of that. You're somewhere on the rule. You're somewhere on the time marker. I'm, I'm imagining like a time, not a time marker, a, uh, a timeline, right? Or like a number line, you know what I'm talking about? In math class, number line, right? You're all, we're all in the negative, right? You might be a minus two, your friend might be a minus four, doesn't matter. You're still in the negative, right? You're still on the wrong side of the graph because we're all sinners. It says he's able to save to the uttermost. So, if you think about what the author of Isaiah said, Isaiah, if you think about what he said, Really, it's God speaking. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Paul puts it like this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. It says, in the favorable time, I've listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation, right now. Here's the problem. So many of you will think about this sermon, and you'll think, okay, yes, I know this is true. But you might walk away, and you might say, nope, not going to happen for me. Okay. Today's the day of salvation. The whole point of what Isaiah is saying is, seek the Lord while he may be found. He'll be found right now if you come to him. Just, but, but you got to forsake your way. you got to repent. Okay. John the Baptist put it like this, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. It says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. That means to act, live it out. Don't just say, I'm going to be a different person. Right? turn to God really be forgiven and then when you're really forgiven what's going to happen you're going to start bearing fruit you're going to start acting like a Christian don't decide I'm going to start acting like a Christian and then maybe I'll become one that's not how it works how does a person become one you become one by turning to Jesus asking him for salvation he turns you into one and then what happens then you start living this out then you start living that as imperfectly as you might God will cause you to live more righteously that's how it works It's not something you can earn. You might be thinking, this is too good to be true. There's no way he can just freely do this. Well, if you think that, you're forgetting what Jesus did. You're forgetting chapter 53, right? If if you just are jumping in, maybe you didn't hear the sermon last week, and you're thinking, okay, great. This means God doesn't care about my sin, right? Well, then you're missing this whole, the backstory of Isaiah 53, that God cares about it so much, he came and died on your behalf and my behalf. That's how much it matters to him. But back in our passage, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, check it out, Isaiah 55, 8. After saying, you got to forsake your ways and your thoughts and all that stuff, God's talking here. He says, my thoughts, my ways, the way I do things, those ways are not your ways. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, I want you to tell me, how big is space? How big is space? How big, if you just kind of drew a straight line up, right, how how far is it? What's the expanse? What's the border of space, right? You don't have one, right? You don't know. You have no idea, right? Even the best science, it's like, it's the universe, like, we have no idea how big, right? We can guess, we can make estimates, right? How high is the heavens above the earth? I have no idea, okay? He says, that's how much higher God's ways and God's thoughts are above your thoughts. Why does he put it like that? Well, if you're a person who thinks there's no way I can be saved, there's no way I can just come to the waters and drink, there's no way God will save me. God says, no, seek me while I may be found and just remember, my ways are not your ways, right? You might not be able to forgive somebody. That makes sense. God's ways are higher than your ways. God is able to forgive a sinner even if you would be unable to forgive, Right? Some of you think, oh, I can never be forgiven because I, I'm so bad. No one would ever forgive me. I wouldn't forgive me. Okay, God is able to forgive you even if you like, think, oh, I could never forgive a person who did that to me, ever. Well, God's ways are higher than your ways. Look at verse 10. Just to prove the point even further, he gives an analogy here, just like my family in a car analogy. This is kind of a better one. But he says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and come down from the sky and don't return there, but they water the earth. Snow doesn't go back up to the sky, right? It evaporates, yeah, but that's different. It doesn't come back up as snow, right? It says, it comes down, and what does it do? It waters the earth, and it makes the earth bring forth and sprout, right? Just like all the water, right, comes down, there's rain, stuff grows. Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, right? Giving you seed for next year and also bread for this year. That's what happens when it rains, okay? So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, this is God talking to me, it shall not return to me empty, right? When God declares something and does something he doesn't miss, okay? He doesn't do it halfway. He doesn't try and not succeed. It says, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Whatever God wants to do in saving, which is what he's talking about here, he will do and shall succeed in the thing for which I've sent it. Some of us might look at this offer salvation and think there's no way that God could ever do it. Some of you might think, well, I believe that God has forgiven my mom and dad. I think God can forgive them. I, I believe God can forgive my small group leader. I think, you know what? I think my small group leader is a real Christian, right? I hope you think that, right? I hope that's true of all your small group leaders, right? I think they're a real Christian. You believe that sincerely. If I asked you, hey, you know, if your small group leader got in a car crash tonight on the way home and they died, would they go to heaven? So many of you would say, absolutely, totally they would. Ask the same question about you. If you got in a car and you died on the way home, would you go to heaven? Well, the answers get a lot less certain, don't they? Well, maybe. Well, I hope so. Here's the problem, which we've just shown is a a separation in trusting in Jesus, right? If if you're not sure, right, I want you to be sure. Again, if you're not saved, I'm not telling you to convince yourself that you're a Christian, right? If you know you're not a Christian, that's fine. But I'm just saying the idea here is that you would believe this for yourself. You should believe that if you're a Christian, you will believe for yourself. I am saved just as much as my leader is saved, just as much as my pastor is saved because Jesus is the one doing the saving. Jesus saved me, Jesus saved them. Same thing, Point number three, don't doubt that God is able and willing to save. Don't doubt it. So many people doubt that God's able to save them Sometimes I've sat with junior high students like you. Maybe um, you sat with a leader and you've talked and you say, I want to become a Christian. One of the questions I'll ask you is like, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Right? Well, are, are you going to do something? And they're like, no. And the right answer is no, there's nothing I can do. Right? I have to ask Jesus to do this for me. And then I say, okay. What is the reason you should be saved? And if the answer is, well, because, you know, I really want to live for God. Eh, wrong answer. If the answer is, well, I've done a lot for God, eh, wrong answer, right? The only answer that works is that Jesus promised to save me, and I trust him because what if what he has done for me? Jesus said in John 6, this is John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him if you look to Jesus, believe that he can save you and that he will save you and that really he has saved you, well, then he says, I'll give him eternal life right now. And, and in addition to giving him eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day. Some of you think eternal life is just being resurrected on the last day. He says, no, I give you eternal life now and I'll raise you on the last day. It's included in eternal life, but it's not the sum of eternal life. It's like how a square Is a rectangle but not every rectangle is a square right 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 is that confusing you know what i'm talking about every square is a rectangle it's a quadrilateral right is that that the right term yeah good 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 remember my third grade geometry right it's a quadrilateral that was probably a geometry question right Uh, but is every rectangle a square you'd say no there are parallelograms, right? Those are quadrilaterals. There are normal rectangles. There are skinny rectangles. I don't know what else there are. Uh, is a rhombus? A rhombus is, is four sides, right? 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 What am I, what's my point? I'm saying eternal life, right? Eternal life includes living forever, but that's not the total of it. Eternal life is more than that, just like rectangles are more than squares, one good part, sorry, of the math analogy. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I hate geometry. What I meant was um, eternal life. What's Jesus offering his people? Well, he's offering living forever, but more than that, a quality of life. Knowing God is what it says in John 17. If you're in Isaiah chapter 55, look at Isaiah chapter 59. Just two pages to the right, three pages to the right. Maybe four. He's got a big print Bible. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Isaiah says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. A lot of people think, well, God can't save me. He says, nope, that's not what it is. And it's not even that his ear is dull, right? Maybe some of your grandparents, right, can't hear very well. My grandpa, you can't, in one side of his face, right, you got to talk really loud. (laughs) Sorry, grandpa. Uh, But it's just true. It says God's ear is not dull. It's not like talking to someone who's like, what did you say? Right? It's not like that. It's not, it's not dull that you can't hear. But, verse 2, your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right? So if you're thinking, well, I want, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. Right? B- but, but why is God not saving me? Right? Why is God not listening? Well, if the whole point is that you've been cherishing and loving your sin, and you don't want to give up your sin, but you're asking, God, save me. But you know what? I really like my sin, too right? says, well, don't expect God to listen to you. It's not that God didn't hear it. God heard the prayer. He's not going to answer it because you're not asking the right way. You're asking, trying to hang on to all your sin. You got to be that person like Isaiah chapter 55, giving up your sin and asking and trusting. That's the person that will be saved. We need to be reconciled to God. Like we're enemies with God. We need to be friends with God. How does that work? Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus reconciles us. Colossians 1 verse 21 says, and you, he's talking to Christians, He says you once were alienated, you once were separated from God doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Isaiah 53 is the answer. That's why Jesus saves, in order to present you holy and blameless before him. If you're in Isaiah chapter 59, look at verse 16. Isaiah 59 verse 16, check it out in your Bibles. says God looked and he looked for a person who was righteous. He looked for somebody. I think he's really talking about after the exile here. He's promising in the future. He's saying, hey, uh, check this out. Is there anybody who's doing the righteous thing? Well, the problem is he saw that there was not any man. No man was righteous. Verse 16. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Right? Who's the person that's going to live righteously even after the exile? Nobody. It says, then his own arm. God had to intervene himself. His own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. All right, you might thinking, oh, that that's like the armor of God in the New Testament. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Paul got that from right here in Isaiah chapter 59. This is God, who wears the armor, that's why it's called the armor of God in the New Testament. Paul says, hey, just like God put on the helmet of salvation, so to speak, and he went to war, and he's the one who accomplished salvation, he says you can do that too in the New Testament. God enables you to fight the battle as a Christian. That's what he's saying here. What's the point? God had to do it himself. Don't ever doubt that God's able and willing. This says that he will do it. He promises to do it. If you're in Isaiah, look back, Isaiah 40, or 54. We were in Isaiah 59, turn to the left real quick. Isaiah 54, verse 10. Again, this is for anybody who doubts that God is able and willing to save. Isaiah 54, 10, to this unrighteous group of people, these Israelites, look what he says to them. He says, for the mountains may depart. Saddleback mountain, At some point in time, if you give it a lot of time, a lot of erosion, you know what? it might move. It might move a little bit. It might move piece by piece. You know what? If somebody was, you know, big and strong enough, they could move bricks and rocks, and they could take the boulders out, and they could move Saddleback Mountain, right? It's a big mountain, but you could move it. At some point, says, if you, you know, you blew it up with a, you know, bomb, you try to dynamite, yeah, you could move it, right? Hard to do, but you can move it. Here's what it says. Mountains may depart and hills may be removed. The most solid and secure thing, a mountain, a hill. God says at some point those will fail. If you hide behind a mountain, at some point someone could dig it all in. Someone could blow up the mountainside, right? Get you out. He says, but you know what's even more secure than a mountain? You know what's more sure than a big hill? Well, here's what's more sure. My steadfast love My love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's what God says to his saved people. So if you're thinking, well, yeah, I bet God could save. right? If you're a person who trusts in Christ, if you're a real Christian, you're someone who trusts in Christ, not only that he might possibly save a sinner, but that he has saved sinners and he has saved me. And here's what God says to you. The mountains might move. Saddleback Mountain could be taken out. You could blow it up with a bomb. You could move it one by one, rock by rock. But here's the thing. My steadfast love for you will never be taken away, ever. If that's true, think that through. If that's true, that changes everything about you, doesn't it? It's like, I'm secure. I'm right with God. I can live for God. I can live for God now, really, truly live for God. Because he did it. So many people think that God can save sinners, but not you, the sinner question you got to ask yourself is, do you trust God to save you? Have you asked Jesus to save you? Not thinking, has he saved my parents? Not saying, could he make someone a Christian? Hypothetically, has he made me one? Have you called on him? Have you turned to him? Have you trusted in him? Have you given up your sin? Not like those people in Isaiah 59 who like, are saying, God, why aren't you hearing us? And God says, you, you, you're not repenting. You're hanging on to all your sin. That's why I'm not hearing you. If he promised, he'll do it. And if he promised, and he'll do it, back to our passage in Isaiah 55, look what happens. Look at verse 12. Says, this is what happens. If you trust God for salvation, you'll be like this. You'll rejoice. You'll be have, full of joy. Verse 12, he says, for you shall go, you shall go out in joy. This is Isaiah 55, verse 12. Isaiah 55, 12. It says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. Have you ever heard a mountain sing? Not just in the sound of music, right? The hills are alive with the sound of music, right? You know that movie? All right, never mind. Some of the girls knew. It says, you know what? This is going to be so good. Um, it's like the mountains and the hills will sing. You ever been in such a good mood that the mountains and the hills, it's like, they could sing too. You have to be in a really good mood to think the mountains and the hills could sing. And, you know, you just sing and everybody, lo- like, you'd have to be in a really good mood to do that, right? Most of us don't live in that headspace unless you're a singer. Right. Some of you singers, you sing all the time. You're like, everything could sing. There you go, right? Okay, here's what God's trying to say. He says, this is how good that salvation is, right? It's like the mountains and the hills. They'll, they'll be singing along with you, okay? Why? It says, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress, the big redwood tree looking thing. Instead of briar shall come up the myrtle tree, that elegant, beautiful tree and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. He's saying the curse of sin is totally reversed. Thorns and briars, what should that remind you of? Well, it should remind you of the curse, right? What does God say to Adam? He says, because you've sinned, I'm going to make thorns and briars come up, and it's going to be really hard to work the land. Here's what God says here, it's like those thorns and those briars they're removed and what comes up in their place? Big trees, strong trees, beautiful trees, amazing features. Why? Because God has done it. The idea is you can rejoice because God will accomplish salvation. And for you, if you're a Christian, think this through. Um, has God saved you? Has God saved you? Yes and no, right? Has God saved you? Well, yeah, he saved me. I mean, in Jesus, he saved me, but has he saved you? Well, you're not in heaven yet, The judgment hasn't happened yet. So there's even a future element to this. You're not living in your resurrected body yet. You have eternal life, but you're not even there yet. Okay, so yes and no, okay? Here's what he's saying. You can rejoice like it's already happened. You can rejoice like it's already happened because God has promised it. Point number four, I'd love for you to write this down. Praise God in advance for all that he'll do. Praise God in advance for all that he'll do. How do you do that? How do you praise God in advance for all the things that he'll do when right now things are hard and are painful? How can you come to the water, so to speak, get saved, be saved, and then rejoice as though it's all accomplished, as though you're living in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the New Testament gives us the answer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I want you to write that down. 1 Peter 1, 13. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Get ready like you're going to war right now preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, right, being ready to fight a battle. Here's what he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says, if you want to do this right here and praise God in advance, here's what you need to think about every single day. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, everything will be made right. I will be with God forever. I will have my eternal body. There will be no more problems, no more relationship issues. All of it will be gone. No more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. None of it anymore. No relationship conflicts with my friends and siblings and, and brother, sister, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. None of that. No, all of it will be made perfect. Righteous will live by faith. All of it. It says even the nature will rejoice. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, it's like right now, nature is being hurt. It's like it's all held captive Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that we were revealed in the last times. It says, right now, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's like nature, like the rocks and the hills and the birds, like they want Jesus to come back too. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, they get fixed too. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, right? It wasn't cursed because it wanted to be cursed, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And let me tell you what, guys. The pains of childbirth are real. Not really for dad, but they are real. I should ask Alexander about that sometime. I won't tell you about it now. But the pains of childbirth, are here's, what, here's what Paul's saying. It's like right now, right? We're all pushing that baby out. (laughs) It's kind of gross, but that's what he says. It's like, we're right now pushing this baby out. How does it feel to push the baby out? Well, eh, not great, right? But what's going to happen? He says, at some point, baby's going to come out, and guess what? Won't matter. It won't matter anymore how you feel, because you got the baby, right? It'll feel great. That's what it says right now. So it's like, when we suffer in this world today, When you go to school tomorrow, and maybe you're not accepted in a lot of friend groups because you're that weird Christian person, and it hurts, okay? Remember, it's like we're all giving birth right now, right? It's like the world's giving birth, but there will come a time where will all be made perfect, right? Don't think too long about that. You're not giving birth right now, but think that through, right? That's the idea. It's the picture. Paul Paul said it. It's not my analogy. Paul says it. He says that's what it's like. The whole creation is like that. Speaking of childbirth, um, look at Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah 54, verse 1. Remember, this is right after the, the song, the servant song, where he says, you can be saved through Jesus, the servant. He's going to make unrighteous people, like you and me, he's going to make them righteous. Now look what he says in Isaiah 54. What's the first word? Sing. 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 Who should sing? Oh, barren one. And You know what a barren one is? A lady who can't have kids. He's saying... Okay, because you can't have kids. You should sing, O oh, barren one, who did not bear children. Yeah, that's the idea. Break forth into singing and cry out loud. This is not a sad song. This is a happy song they're going to sing. You who have not been in labor, right? Why, why would this happen, right? A lot of people have looked at this text. One person said, this is a really, really cruel thing to say to somebody. Hey, you haven't had a baby. You can't have babies. Why don't you sing for joy about that, right? What? That's cruel. Why, why would he say it? Look what he says next. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Then he says to this lady who who's never had kids, Enlarge the place of your tents. Make your tent, you know, when you're camping, right? And you pick your spot for your tent. He says, Make the tent bigger, right? Where the stakes are, right? where you're planning, just move them out. Move them out ten more feet on every side. Make your tent bigger. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. We don't, there's no reason to do that. Well, keep going, keep reading. He says, and let the curtain of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen the cords. Make your tent bigger. Why are we making this tent bigger? For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring. Whose offspring? Right? The people who can't have kids, their offspring. What is this talking about? Will possess the nations. They'll not only fill this tent, they'll fill the whole world and your people will fill the desolate cities, the cities that are empty. He says to you, people. What what is he talking about? Remember this group of Israelites, they went through a really hard time. A lot of them were barren. A lot of them did have their kids taken away. A lot of them did go through a really hard time, and here's what God says to them. Even though you've been through the worst thing in your life, here's what you can do. Because God's bringing salvation, you've got something better. You can rejoice. Sing for joy, because God's going to do something better. Later in Isaiah 56, you don't have to turn there, but he says, hey, you people, right, some of them, (laughs) he calls them eunuchs, That means men on the other side who can't have kids. He says, you eunuchs, don't say I'm a dry tree, which is a illustrative way of saying I can't have kids. Don't say that because God is gonna give you something better than sons and daughters. You're gonna have a memorial that will last longer than sons and daughters. What is he talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's saying God's gonna do something even better than give you you know, children. And he says to this lady, the lady called Israel here, says, you've been barren. You went through a really hard time, but you can sing because God's gonna take that reproach away from you. Look at verse four, Isaiah 54, four, check it out. It says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, right? You can imagine back then, and a little bit now, but mostly back then, there was this big stigma. If you couldn't have babies as a lady, it was a really big deal. You were looked down upon. People said, you must have done something wrong. You must be a sinner. You must be all these bad things. Right? It says, don't, don't be ashamed anymore, right? God's gonna give you more than what you lost before because the reproach of your widowhood will be remembered no more. Look at verse five. What does it say? For your maker is your husband. Right? God not only has made you, but God loves you. Like a husband loves his wife. Just like in the New Testament, it says Christ loves the church god and his people like a husband and a bride the lord of hosts is his name if you ever doubt who this person is who loves you more than anything in the world look look at his name the lord of hosts is his name the holy one of israel is your redeemer your redeemer think about like the book of ruth remember the book of ruth who was that guy boaz the redeemer the one who bought her the one who got her back didn't buy her with some bride price or anything no it just brought her back into this group of people You redeem this lady who didn't belong to the group. She's a Moabitess. She didn't belong in the family. Guess what Boaz does? Redeems her, brings her a part of the family. The Lord has called you like a deserted wife, grieved in spirit, right? What would it be like to be a wife who got left by her husband? Well, that would be really bad. You'd be grieved in your spirit, wouldn't it? Yeah, totally. He says there, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. That's what it's like. It's like these Israelites. They were like just newly married, right? And they were cast off. Why were they cast off, right? It doesn't give all the context here. You're reading in the book of Ezekiel, right? In the DBR, remember today, right? That's why they're cast off. Because remember, if you read today, Ezekiel 16, I think it was, God said that these Israelites are acting like an unfaithful wife, always cheating on God. He says, that's why you're cast off. It wasn't because God hated them. It's because they were sinful. They ran away from God. Look at verse 7. God says to them, for a brief moment, I've deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. He says to these people, you can praise God in advance for all that God has done, because you've seen what God did through the servant in the past. God has promised a way of salvation for you and for me. And a lot of that might seem like, okay, what are we talking about? A wife, you know, desolate, not having kids. What are we talking about? The whole point of this is he says, even though these Israelites might be like you, sinful person, done what's wrong. You felt the shame of your sin. Here's what he says. Feel it no more. Turn to God. Feel the sting of your sin for sure. Turn to Jesus. Be forgiven. And then don't feel the the guilt of your sin anymore. It's done. It's over. All that past, whatever you did in your past, it's over. It's over paid for, nailed to the cross. It's better now that you're in Christ than anything else. You know, with uh, Eden being born, there's a lot of rejoicing, right, for our family. A lot of people, you know, coming over, saying hi. A lot of people excited to see the baby. It's all really exciting, right? A lot of rejoicing, a lot of cards, a lot of people, you know, commenting on Instagram, right? Yeah, it's just a lot of, a lot of that, right? A lot of comments and pictures and grandparents, you know, and it's like, okay, it's just a baby, right? Okay, Um, super exciting. I'm excited. I'm more excited than, you know, I would let on to you. I wouldn't tell you how excited I am. Um, But point is, it's exciting, right? There's rejoicing. The, The Bible says that when you have a kid, there's rejoicing, right? Obviously, that's true. The Bible says there's something better than having a kid, though. There's something more joyful. There's something that can happen tonight that's a bigger deal than a baby being born. Jesus says in Luke 15, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. One sinner repents than over a hundred people who, who just don't need to repent, who are already right with God. It says elsewhere that there's like joy in heaven for like a half hour, right? for 30 minutes. Right, The angels are having a celebration because why? One sinner repents. Because you turn to God. That's a bigger deal. If tonight you turn to God, you ask for salvation, you trust for the first time wholeheartedly in Jesus for salvation, that will be a bigger deal than any birth of any baby it is a bigger deal. If you turn to Jesus, it's a miracle that God would save you. He promises to do it. He says those who come to him, he won't cast out. That's why if you're a Christian, you already know point four. You can praise God in advance for all he's done. How do we do that? First Peter 1, setting our hope on Jesus coming back every day, trusting that every single day. The offer of salvation is out there. What are you going to do about it? That's the question. We're going to talk about that in small groups right now, but let's pray before we go. God, help us with this. We know that we can't even see our own sin unless you show it to us, so I pray right now that as we just have already been talking, I pray that you would show us our sin more, more detail, more clarity. Pray for the people in this room who know their sin, but have never dealt with it. I pray that they would not try to fix it or deal with it or hide it, but they'd bring it to the light, bring it to you, confess it to others, and that they'd forsake their way, their evil way, and turn to you. We believe what you say in Isaiah 55, that everyone who comes to the waters and drinks will be saved, just like you said in John 4, that you give living water to us, all a picture of salvation. I believe that, that you've saved me because of what you've done. I trust wholeheartedly in your son, Jesus, who's paid for my sins. I pray that more people tonight would turn to you and trust you wholeheartedly, that for those who are looking for more and more complicated things, that they'd say, this is it. For those who don't want to give up their sin, I pray that you'd show them that this is so much better. pray that you would show us our sin, that you would break our hearts, and then that we would be revived by you. You live in high and holy places, but also with those of a contrite heart. We believe that. I trust you and I pray that more people tonight would trust you for the first time